You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore that app. So, um, going to be a short episode. I do apologize for that. Uh, late start and whatnot, hitting snooze and all that good stuff. Don't you hate that? And you're like, you know, you get up and you look at your phone, and you're like, oh, I got time, uh, plenty of time. And you go hit snooze. And then one of those times you get up and look and like, what are you doing? I don't know if like, that last time I hit snooze, I just power napped through my last four alarms. Or if I was just snoozing like crazy, not really paying attention because I'm delirious. It's like, oh, 450 alarm? Oh, yeah, I, we got plenty of time. Yeah, all the time in the world. It's not actually 450, but it's still, it's like, time to get going, time to make the donuts. Anyways, it is what it is. Don't have time to get to what I mainly wanted to get to, but let's just jump quickly into some questions. We'll skip the ads and uh, we'll call it a day. So I got a, a question from uh, Jesse that I think is a very good question and needs to be fleshed out because I'm kind of stuck right now. And so I, I guess I don't have a definitive answer, and I don't know if we're going to, well, maybe we will when these things start to pan out. And hopefully some of those question askers out there are listening to the show so that we can get some clarification whenever we can get an ear of somebody in the organization. But Jesse from Oregon says, Hey, Ryan, question. I was wondering why we are talking about running Tampa 2. I know that's Barry's background, but I read in an article that the reason LaFleur brought in Barry was so he could run the Fangio system. Here's my concern with all of this. I've talked at length about how all these coaches are extremely intelligent, and they understand things at a pretty high level. For example, if I were to ask Mike McCarthy to explain to me Matt LaFleur's offensive system, he could break it down to me in ways that would blow my friggin' face off. He could literally write a book about it, and I'd read it and be like, wow, this guy is a genius. Why didn't he run that system? The point is, when you get to the NFL level, 
there's there's knowing it, there's being able to regurgitate how it works generally, and there's understanding it on such a deep level that you can actually draw up an entire off-season program. You can sit down and coach your guys the fundamentals of this defense, not just the how but the why. Teach your entire coaching staff the fundamentals of this defense so that they can teach the players the fundamentals of the defense. And then when it comes time to game plan, you game plan based on how to, using this defense as the fundamental, how do we then draw up a game plan to attack another offense. you got to understand that. This is their style of offense. How does my defense counteract their offense? And then on game day, on a play-to-play basis, knowing what to do. Joe Barry has one year of experience with a guy that played under Vic Fangio for a couple years. One year. And that was last year with the Rams. And again, I'm sure he got it. He had somebody teach him what it is his linebackers have to do in this system. He was in the meeting rooms and understands the defense I'm just I would be shocked if the decision to hire Joe Barry came down entirely to his ability to abandon what is his core his fundamental defense abandon that the thing that you understand on a foundational level that you can teach that you can coach abandon that and and I shouldn't say abandon because again all of the everybody does everything Vic Fangio looks a little bit like Joe Barry. Joe Barry looks a little bit like Vic Fangio. They all kind of borrow from each other. But again, what is the fundamental understanding of your concept? And then we can spiral out from there. So is this going to be a Joe Barry defense that takes and borrows heavily from what he learned from this Fangio defense? Is this a Fangio version of a Joe Barry defense, or is this a Joe Barry version of a Fangio defense? I just I feel uncomfortable with the idea that he's here just to run Fangio's defense. Beyond that, there was a much better hire if this is just about you come in here and pretend to be Vic Fangio, and his name is uh, Ejiro Evero. I knew the wrong way to say it. I had to try to remember the right way to say it. That guy spent years under Fangio directly at San Francisco. Years. So, I mean, that's the obvious choice. If you just want a Vic Fangio clone to come in here and, and, and basically say, hey, what would Vic do in this situation? Right? He writes a... WWVD, he's got a WWVD bracelet on, what would Vic do? I think Evero is the right answer. In other words, I'm I'm a little unsure, and I finally got the article to work. Tried and tried and tried for them to take my $1 so I could read this article, and um, now it works. So let me just read what it says. And, and, you know, again, we've got a reporter who's reporting based on sources, who are reporting based on their understanding, probably know somebody who knows somebody, what exactly is going on here? But here's what it says. According to sources who have connections to Lafleur, the decision came down to the Packers coach wanting to run Vic Fangio's scheme that Barry was a part of last year as a linebacker's coach for the Rams coordinator Brandon Staley. It is the scheme Staley used in producing the NFL's number one ranked defense, which in turn helped him land the L.A. Chargers head coaching job after one year as a coordinator. It's the same scheme Fangio perfected during stints in San Francisco and Chicago that earned him the Denver Broncos head coaching position. Now, keep in mind, all of that stuff at the end was filler, right? That's, that is, who is this? Silverstein explaining, you know, what the connection is. He had to go find out, okay, who played for Fangio? Oh, Staley. Oh, yeah, Staley. Oh, number one ranked D. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still coming in at the point where what we, what we have learned, supposedly, is that the, the decision came down to wanting to run Vic Fangio's scheme. And again, I find that hard to believe considering there was a better candidate for that. 
In other words, there has to be more to that story. Ejiro Evero is better at understanding Vic Fangio's scheme. Now, again, all of this stuff is, is slightly different. Brandon Staley isn't exactly Vic Fangio. Ejiro Evero isn't exactly Vic Fangio. They all have their own different styles and twists on things because they've all gone through so many different things. Evero did learn under Fangio for a long time, but he was also at, let's see, he was an assistant coach at UC Davis, so he learned under people there. He was a quality control coach under Tampa Bay from 20, uh, 2007 to 2009. Um, San Francisco in 2010 before Fangio got there. Then back at San Francisco 2012 to 2013 under Fangio. Um, 2014 and 15, I think, is still Fangio. Then he came to Green Bay, so in 2016, he learned under Capers for a little while. And then he also was with the Rams in the last stint. So he was also with Staley, who was a Fangio guy, as well as under Wade Phillips for the Rams. So when you say, what does Ejiro Evero do? And look, maybe, and, and this is the thing, maybe it comes down to, what, at their core, who understands it more, but also who's defense is going to look more like not just what did Fangio run with the Bears, but what the uh, Rams ran this past year. The point is, I don't really know. I, I Again, I find it hard to believe that it's just who's going to look like Vic Fangio. I think it's it's very similar to why Matt LaFleur got hired. Although Matt LaFleur was just inundated year after year after year after year under the Shanahan system, so that's part is slightly different. But it's very clear that what they're doing is they're looking at this and saying there is one style of defense that all of us hate. We all really, really, really hate it, and we need to be doing that. And it's similar to the Shanahan offense. Everybody acknowledges that this is the offense that's destroying people right now. That is really hard to defend against. How, how do we, what, what do we do about that? Well, we need to bring that here. And who's the best to bring that here? It's this guy. So again, I don't know the answer. I have my doubts that this is about just being Vic Fangio's defense. And I did talk to Coach Hahn about it yesterday. There, are, there is some overlap between Fangio's defense and Barry's defense. But they are different defenses. I mean, fundamentally. The one thing I can say that stays the same, which is great because I've talked about it for two days in a row, is that both defenses still require very good linebackers. For example, what we saw under Vic Fangio was good linebackers. What we see with Tampa 2 teams is good linebackers. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of grace here and say that it's still early in the process, and I'm still in, un, in uh, 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 still in the process of learning and understanding what all these different defenses are about. And... Um, We'll try to explore outward into different directions to try to get to the bottom of what this is. I think it's painfully obvious that um, Joe Barry has taken on the influences of the teams that he learned from and that that was part of the reason that he's being hired. But I also just find it very hard to believe that he's going to abandon what he's always known and take on the identity of the guy he was with for one year. And if we go through even, you know, again, Joe Barry's thing, USC, Northern Arizona, UNLV, 49er. This is well before uh, Fangio. This was in 2000. Uh, Buccaneers, 2001 to 2006. Lions, 2007, 2000. Well, he was the coordinator. But again, with that, he had a, uh, I think he had a defensive head coach. So he was learning from him. Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2009. USC again in 2010, 2011. Chargers linebackers coach. That was under John Pagano. 2049ers was Jim Mora. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, the defensive coordinator was Monty Kiffin, and he also played under Tony Dungy, who was a defensive guy at that time. Then after that, in 2002, John Gruden was the head coach. Monty Kiffin still the defensive coordinator. You know, he worked with Mike Tomlin 
It's crazy, especially when you go way back to see all the defensive guys that, that really took a step. Jay Gruden, Mike Tomlin, Rod Marinelli, Raheem Morris. Actually, when he went back to um, Tampa Bay in 2009, Raheem Morris was the head coach at the time. Defensive coordinator Jim Bates. You know, what is, I don't know about Jim Bates. Jim Bates knows something. So, again, it's just, it's a lot of different influences over the years. What does that look like in 2021 for the Green Bay Packers? I don't know, man. But I just, I at this point in time, I'm going to stick with the idea that he's going to stay as a Tampa 2-style defensive guy. I don't know if that's the case. And maybe it'll it'll be the same but less so. Because, again, lots of these guys, everybody at some point is going to run Tampa 2. It might be once or twice a year just to mix it up. It might be, you know, your core. I don't, I don't know to what degree. But the point is, from what we've learned, when he was a defensive coordinator, that was his his base. And so I'm going to stay at this point with the notion that that is what's coming here, um, but with a heavy influence of the Vic, the Vic Fangio-style defense. How does that look, man? I don't know. I'm sorry. So, I, again, we're, we're, we're going to look at linebacker because it matters in both. Beyond that, I'm kind of stuck in a holding pattern. But I, I guess we have plenty of time to evaluate both. Right? What does this defense look like as a Vic Fangio defense, which I've already started that process? What does this defense look um, as a Joe Barry defense? I have not started that process. And so we'll go from there. So great question, and I wish I had more clarification. Um, I wish we all had more clarification. Unfortunately, we do not. Got a question from Patrick. He says, hey, Ryan, I know the season just ended, but I saw Richard Sherman is an undrafted free agent. He averaged about $9 million a year, so who knows with cap, but I think he would be more than solid upgrade over Kevin King. Still draft someone in the upcoming draft, but he would take the role in a year or two. Um, I mean, look, it, it always is, has to run through the filter of the, uh, the cap. Again, it's similar to the Patrick Peterson. It, it, it's, let's just say it's the exact same discussion we had with Patrick Peterson, except Richard Sherman is a better corner. Richard Sherman is what Kevin King was supposed to be, and Kevin King didn't become that. Um, again, the question I have is, is that overkill? And, and the only reason you even ask if it's overkill is because there is a salary cap. And if you invest too much in one place, you're not going to have enough for another. It's similar to when I was looking at computer builds. I have a budget. If I invest too much in a graphics card, I'm going to have to cut back on things like processor. It's a zero-sum game. If we add somewhere, we have to take from somewhere else. And I just don't know if we need to put that much into corner because it means we're going to lose in a lot of other places. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to just the general idea if we drop all that other stuff. Should we bring in Richard Sherman? Of course. I think he's a great cornerback. And I'm not going to be mad if we do it, but I'm going to be wary of what that means for our contract situation going forward. To put that into direct terms, would I bring in... Richard Sherman, if it means we lose Corey Lindsley, no. I would pay Corey Lindsley and let Richard Sherman just go on his merry way. So it's hard to kind of elaborate beyond that. I can go down the list. Would you rather him than this? Him than this guy? Him than this guy? You know, if it's him or Preston, well, duh. If it's him or Aaron Jones, duh. Because we're getting rid of them anyways. But I guess it's just a question of would you rather use that money in other places? And and maybe. And let me look up really quickly what it... Um, not doubting you, but everybody has different estimations of how much his cap is worth. So let's just take a look here. So over the cap, um, and and here's the thing, I, you know, and they kind of over the cap does things in terms of uh, quadrants and whatnot. They see his value down in the four or five million dollar range. I doubt he gets that little money, considering he's Richard Sherman. And I don't know how they come to that conclusion, but whatever. It, again, it it could be could be anywhere, I guess. 
Spot track puts them at about seven. And really, I mean, I don't know. In terms of free agents, that's about as cheap as you're going to get for as good a player as he is. And I know he's getting up there in age, but he's still playing at a pretty high level. So that, that is pretty low. So I'm, I'm sticking with no just because we don't have really any money. And um, if we're going to kind of get crazy in one direction, I don't know that, that it's going to be corner. Not because it's not a big need. we got to fill in somebody. But, you know, I, first of all, Sherman is kind of a, a number one. I think if we're going to fill that spot, we're going to go out and get somebody that's a little lesser and a little cheaper, you know, uh, one of those $2 million guys. Because at the end of the day, what we're really talking about at corner um, and, and again, it's not because we don't want the best of the best, but we have to find a balance between we need bodies to play the cornerback position, which we kind of are at a loss for, but we also don't have a lot of money to spend. I guess the part that I'm having trouble with is it's hard to find somebody for less than seven. <laughs> William Jackson, 6.3, I don't know. I mean, there's Artie Burns for a million bucks, but that's that's pretty brutal. I'll just run with Josh Jackson. I'll be all right. Let's see. Going over to the Patreon here, we'll just start at the bottom. Dustin says, could Preston, Kirksey, Lowry, and Wagner have any value in the trade market? I don't think Lowry has any value, but the others might. What do you think they're, uh, what would you rank their value at if you're trying to trade them away? I'll I'll be honest, I don't think any of them are going to get traded. Trading, it seems like such a rare thing, and the Packers especially just don't trade players. I really think they're just going to be let walk. Hope that they sign somewhere else and take the compensatory value in the draft. Whatever that may be. I don't think any of these guys are going to get massive contracts, but we'll probably stack a bunch of, you know, sixth, seventh round picks. And I think the Packers will prize that over whatever you can get in trade value, which, by the way, is going to be probably the same. If anything, I mean, some of these guys, I don't. Preston, maybe. Kirksey, I don't think you get anything. Lowry, I don't think you get anything. Wagner, I doubt you get anything. Maybe Preston as a pass rusher, but it has to be somebody that's looking at him saying, we can make this guy something because he hasn't done squat. Kirksey was terrible getting older, injury history. Lowry hasn't done anything since the year before we gave him a big contract. And Wagner, I just, I just, I mean, we didn't sign any of these guys via trade. They were all let go. They were all allowed to walk even back then, and that's how we got them. So I don't think they suddenly picked up any trade value. I just think that generally teams don't trade players. They let them walk. And then they hope the market kind of picks up on them and they get a decent contract and we get some value in that way. So I'd, I'd be shocked if we end up trading anybody. I mean, trading doesn't come into the comp, uh, conversation really until we start talking about some higher-level guys, guys that you're not going to just let walk because you're not going to get more than a third-round pick in compensation and you want more than that, or you know, possibly something to that effect as well as we want a player back in return, maybe somebody that's still under contract or if our guy is still under contract and we don't want to just obviously cut them because then we just lose them. We don't get anything out of it, and that's ridiculous. Or if we want to trade somebody that, uh, you know, we don't want to have to compete on the market. So, hey, I'll give you this guy, you give me that guy, we'll call it a day. And neither of us has to really compete for the other. But we just we just never really see that happen very often. You know, we've had one trade this year, and it was Stafford and Goff and a bunch of picks. Right? That's, that's a trade. Or, you know, at the trade deadline at the end of the year, you got a bunch of little ticky-tack stuff going on. But let's see, the last time the Packers traded for anything... Um, they traded Trevor Davis away and got a sixth-round pick. So, you know, there is some precedent for it. That was in September. So that would be kind of a similar kind of thing where you got a guy that you don't really want, you find somebody that's going to take him, and, you know, you get that. But that's assuming you don't already let him walk, which I think is probably going to happen with all those guys. Well, again, with the exception of Preston, who's still under contract. So they'll probably try to trade him. If they can't find anybody, they'll just cut him. 
Um, September, a couple weeks prior to that, they traded a seventh-round pick and got B.J. Goodson, the linebacker. They traded away McCray and got a seventh-round pick, traded away a sixth to get Reggie Gilbert, traded Ty Montgomery in 2018 for a seventh-round pick. The last time there was any kind of big trade, we got a fourth-round pick for HaHa Clinton Dix, which we definitely won that trade. Which consequently, I think we traded away to get Darnell Savage. I believe that's how that worked out. We traded away our fourth to move up in the first. Yeah, we gave away our fourth and the fourth that we acquired for um, HaHa Clinton Dix to move up and get Darnell Savage. So, thank you, HaHa. So it's not impossible. Um, there are occasionally. I mean, if, if especially if it seems like we carry these guys into the season, which obviously is only going to count for guys that um, still are under contract. I doubt we sign them to one-year contracts and then trade them away. That's going to be a waste. But for anybody that's still under contract that we're expecting to get traded away, you know, for example, Preston, if he's still on the team, um, you know, in August, it's it's possible we're still going to trade him away and get something for him. It's just it's just more rare. Generally, guys just walk and they get signed somewhere else. Uh, we'll do one more question here. Uh, I got to get going, but Danish Cheesehead in the Patreon um, Discord says you talked quite unkindly about the Green Bay inside linebackers and both PFF grades and the eye test sort of confirms this, but isn't the bad inside linebacker play a function of the defensive system where Petten, where big plays are to be avoided at uh, at the cost of allowing short passes and short runs and then banking on the opposing offensive mistakes through the 15 play a touchdown drive will need? Maybe that's the reason Blake Martinez rebounded in New York uh, and spoke harshly about Petten. So that's that's a question for every position on the defense both positively and negatively, right? When Vic Fangio left, all the corners in Chicago got worse. So that's a concern that I have, but it's also possible that certain guys get better, especially the linebackers, but there's still a question of what is your what is your ability? And I know, you know, there are people who are successful that are late round picks, but generally speaking, when your earliest drafted linebacker is a fifth-round pick, I, I suppose, with the exception of Warren Burks. And, and again, that's that's sort of the guy you circle right there, I think. And I talked about that yesterday. If there's a guy that's been held down because of the scheme that actually has the talent, has the ability, has what the team needs, and is going to find his rhythm, which I still doubt because he's been so unbelievably horrible, it's hard to believe that Petten is entirely to blame for that. But if there's a guy that is going to benefit from having a new defensive coordinator that actually cares a lot more about linebackers, that has been a linebacker's coach his entire life, Oren Burks is the guy. So you have Oren Burks, and then Kamal Martin is sort of the bigger run defendier kind of guy, although he was he graded out well in coverage as well. He graded out fine. The, the, the bigger issue I have is I think we as fans sometimes are too easy to just assume we're going to flip a switch and make terrible players great players. I get this all the time with my draft YouTube channel. People comment things that are just absurd. Like, oh, well, he was hurt. Or, you know, we, we just drafted him, right? When I have Panay Sewell, the offensive tackle, go to Miami at three, people are mad because their year prior, they just drafted two offensive tackles. And the objection is they're going to get better, right? Yeah, they were bad, but we just drafted them. It takes time. They're going to get better, as though these guys are just automatically going to be great starting tackles one day. I'm sorry. Guys like Panay Sewell are once-in-a-generation offensive tackles. If you're sitting there and you have the ability to take them, you take them. You take your best tackle you make him your right your your second best tackle you make him your right tackle you kick the other guy into guard yeah that kind of stinks but guess what too bad but again there's just that assumption well it's just automatically going to get better well you know coaches can only do so much right if i walked out on the field and tried to become an inside linebacker it wouldn't go very well if i got a pff grade 
in the double digits, it would be the greatest day of my life. That would be the biggest accomplishment I've ever received. But here's the thing, I wouldn't get it. That would not be in the double digits at all. I'd be lucky to crack a five. And I just don't know, you know, we know we haven't invested in it. And again, it's not just that they're bad, it's that they're really, really bad. Oren Burks had an overall grade of a 28. He's perennially the worst player on this team. Every year, he is the worst player on this entire team. He had an overall grade of a 28. Before that, it was a 45 and a 44. He is just, I mean, it's its its staggering. Again, he has the athleticism and whatnot that, that he's kind of the guy I'm curious about. But Chris Barnes was in the 40s. He was the second worst player on this defense, and he's an undrafted free agent. I just don't have a lot of faith. That's not that undrafted free agents can't become better, but he's an undrafted free agent for a reason. He's got a lot of limitations, and we're seeing it right now on the football field, and I don't know if just hiring um, a defensive coordinator that's a linebacker's coach just automatically makes him better. And, And we have examples. We've seen him as a linebacker's coach in multiple teams, and the linebackers are bad. We've seen him as a defensive coordinator, and the linebackers are bad. Like I said, I, I've, I've really only ever seen one linebacker that was really good, and that was, uh, blanking on his name, the, the, the Ram that went to the Raiders and became bad. And yeah, Blake Martinez did get better when he left, but Blake Martinez was good here under Capers, so we at least saw it. Blake Martinez was a good linebacker. Petten showed up, and it just went bad. So it's, it's possible. I just don't know who I'm looking at and saying, this guy's really going to blow up. Maybe Kamal Martin really takes another step because he was fantastic under Pettin. Or maybe he gets worse because Kamal Martin is a Pettin linebacker and he's just going to completely fall apart when Barry shows up. And again, who's the guy that I'm circling here? Ty Summers. No. Again, not impossible, but we've never seen him play football well and he's a seventh-round pick. We get all excited about these guys in in training camp because, oh, man, he's so fast. He flies around the field and we hear all these things and we get excited. Lots of people are fast. And they're bad football players. I don't care. His best game all year was a 68 against Tampa Bay. His best game was average. He had a 39.9 coverage grade, a 68 run defense grade, 57 tackling, 59 pass rush, which is hard to do considering he only rushed the passer once and has zero pressures. Apparently it didn't go very well. The only other guy you could possibly look at is say, what about Kirksey? He's still only 28. He fits the the prototype. He's a third-round pick. We know he's been good in the past, which by good, I mean his best year he was a 69.8 with Cleveland, so not very good. But he had an 80 coverage grade back in 2015, so maybe. Probably not, but maybe. I, I just, I, generally, I just don't really see it. It's not impossible, right? I didn't expect anything of Kamal Martin, and he really took off. But, I mean, it's a good question just for the whole defense in general. It's hard to tackle it all. From this standpoint, because you got to wonder who gets better, who gets worse, to what degree, which guys just don't even fit this scheme that we don't even realize that Joe Barry's looking at going, I don't don't think it's going to go very well for this guy. I'm very excited about the safeties. I think Jair is going to be fine, especially if they stick with and and, and the thing is with Jair, it doesn't matter. Right. If he's a the reason the corners failed in Chicago is because they went from zone to man and those are zone corners and you cannot ask zone corners to play man you can ask man corners to play zone we know Jair can do it at a very very high level he's very good at he can do everything so I'm not worried about that as much maybe a little bit but you know slightly less so I I guess it's it's if that's your assertion that's fine if you think that he's going to come in and, and the linebackers will play better and we don't need to go out and get somebody that's fine I just don't think that's going to happen and I think if I'm the GM, I'm probably going to invest in somebody. Um, I like Kamal Martin for a certain style. I'm still looking for, and, and all these other guys fit that other prototype. All right, Christian Kirksey 
is 235 pounds, ran a 4.58. That's pretty quick. I mentioned Burks, 4.59. Ty Summers, 4.51. Right, so they're all in that 225, 240, 235 range. They're all running in the 4.5, so they've got speed. I just don't know if any of them are good. Chris Barnes ran like a 4.8, so he's not super fast. But in general, we, we have the bodies. I just don't know if we have the, the right guy. And I, I just, I, it, it's my assertion. And again, if you disagree, that's fine. I just don't think we've got the guy on there. I'm, I'm not confident enough, let's say, that I'm willing to say, eh, we'll probably be all right. Barry will fix it. We don't need to draft anybody. Now, do, does it need to be a first-round pick? No. It never needs to be a first-round pick. If you get yourself in a position, as I've said, to where it's first-round pick or bust, then we've we've done something wrong. And that's when you have to address it in free agency. You just you have to because it might not happen in the first round. If you can't field your team without a certain position, then you better address it in free agency. Anyways, as I said, short episode. I'm really, really way over time already, so I got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.